0: Welcome to the LUX podcast. For today's podcast, with the primary focus on glaucoma, we are very lucky to have brought in Dr. Judith A. Westmays, whose research focus is on ocular diseases and eye development. Dr. Judith Westmays is an Assistant Dean of the Medical Science Graduate Program at McMaster University and a Professor of Pathology and Molecular Medicine under the Faculty of Health Sciences. She holds a PhD in Vision Science and Biology and a Master's in Physiological Optics and Biology her primary areas of research are on molecular and genetic mechanisms regulating eye development and disease, the role of a family of candidate genes AP2 in the development of the eye in congenital ocular disorders such as glaucoma, and the establishment of neuroprotectants for retinal degenerative disorders, including diabetic retinopathy, age-related macular degeneration, glaucoma, and retinitis pigmentosa.
1: All right. So that was, that was quite a bit of words, I guess, (laughs) to describe what you sort of specialize in, but maybe we could just go into a little more depth about, you know, how your career path has shaped up how it is and how you got into these fields of research in the eye and especially things like glaucoma.
2: Well, I started in undergrad, like all of you actually at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo. And, um, I was always interested in biological mechanisms. And so I majored in biology. Back then, there wasn't really a lot of molecular biology, um, although I did favor genetics. I had a lot of courses in genetics. And as time went on, I was also very fascinated about uh, microscopy and being able to see things through the microscope and, and see things we can't normally see with the naked eye. And so that, caught me and then I was always interested in research whether it be in um, plant biology is where I started um, to the sort of research I do now but that led me to explore possibilities of master's and PhD which I did at the University of Waterloo and in that case I went to the optometry school uh, and did my graduate degrees with uh, the director of the school of optometry there and that's where I sort of fell in love with vision research back then I worked on much more comparative biology questions. We were looking at comparison of eyes of cephalopods versus vertebrates. And so very much more evolutionary approach uh, and some of the optics and how the optics work in those animals. And that led me to more disease oriented studies. And that's when I went, did my postdoc at Harvard Medical School. And there I studied mechanisms of corneal injury and regeneration. And uh, again, that that then led me into my own research, which now focuses, again, still very much on molecular biology and genetics of vision. But my disease focus now is mainly in uh, glaucoma and a little bit of cataracts. And so I've been here at McMaster's since 2003. And uh, yeah, so it's been a little while and graduated a number of, I think, very successful students. And as you mentioned earlier, I also oversee the graduate program. So I, I really help with the medical sciences graduate program and the students that are involved in that. So that, that's my sort of career path. And that's where I am today.
1: Yeah, that's actually that's actually a really cool path because there's a couple of things that a lot of undergrad people should probably know from that, right? It's like you started out doing just like biology and stuff. It, like people should realize that it, it's good to not start by specializing, right? Because you only started going into the eyes and stuff until later on, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, that's what I try to tell a lot of my students when I do some sort of career counseling for them that you never know, you know, you sort of your path can really change, but you kind of go with what you're interested in and what you're good at (laughs) and what fascinates you. And that's sort of led me where I am today.
0: So you mentioned that your primary focus now is obviously still on molecular genetics and biology and all these studies of the eye, but there's a disease focus on mainly glaucoma and cataracts. So could you be able to give a quick overview for our listeners just what exactly glaucoma is in a nutshell and also how cataracts play a part in that?
2: Okay, well, actually, to just to start off, the cataracts aspect is just another project in my lab, and it doesn't really relate too much to the glaucoma. And since we're talking about glaucoma today, I just I think I'll focus on that. So glaucoma, and you, you've already mentioned this in your earlier podcast, is a disease where it's usually associated with a high intraocular pressure. And that high intraocular pressure leads to uh, degeneration of the retina. And that's where, you know, your vision is. So um, because of this high IOP that often patients don't even know that they have because it's, there's no pain involved, you'll start to lose your uh, peripheral vision. So the, uh, sort of the peripheral retina is affected first. And then people say, oh my goodness, I'm not seeing, you know, things in the periphery that well. So they'll go to their optometrist or their ophthalmologist and they usually do this um, sort of field test and they'll see that they have distinctive loss of certain fields of their vision that is distinctive or uh, indicative of glaucoma. And that's when they'll start taking their pressures and see that their pressures are likely high and they'll start putting them on therapeutics. Problem is, is that glaucoma can sort of progress over time because people don't often Adhere to the proper medication that they're supposed to take. And it just, it's a degenerative disease and it just continues on. Um, they actually call it the thief of the night because when you're sleeping, your IOP can spike a lot. And if you have glaucoma and you don't even know. And, and so again, you're just the progression of the, Uh, retinal degeneration is occurring. So that's glaucoma. There's, you you mentioned in your earlier podcast, there are different types. There's open angle and closed angle. And closed angle tends to be more of a emergency sort of glaucoma where all of a sudden the angle gets blocked um, completely. And you'll, that, in that case, there's a lot of pain in the eye and people will know something's wrong. But in the open angle glaucoma, there's not a lot of pain. And that sort, sort of happens because over time and with age, the cells that are involved in draining the fluid from the eye become abnormal in different ways, and then the fluid's not draining properly. But again, often patients have a difficult time knowing that's happening. So that's, that's sort of a general idea of glaucoma. We can get into more of the details if, if you like.
1: It's yeah. a pretty scary disease because it's, it's definitely irreversible, right? Once it happens, can't get it back, right?
2: Right. And, and that's true. Once you lose the retinal function and those retinal cells, um, they don't regenerate. You're right. So a lot of research is going into, and, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit more, but besides controlling the intraocular pressure, there's more research being put into neural protectants. So you can protect the retina from degenerating.
3: So um, given that there's two different types of glaucoma, are like your approaches in the lab different?
2: Yes, they are. So, mainly the approaches I take in my lab with the molecular genetic background is we use mouse mutant models. And we've made some mouse models where the angle is pretty much completely closed. And we have another model where the angle is more open. So, and we're comparing those two different models when it comes to looking at different therapeutics. So, yes, in an angle closure model, usually what happens is your iris is adhered to the back of your cornea. And because of that, the fluid can't get out pretty much at all. Whereas in the other models, it's a partial angle closure, somewhat open, and fluid is still draining from the eye. So yeah, you can definitely create different models based on those two types.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really interesting about the models and being able to construct those models. So how recent of an advancement is that being able to just construct specific mouse models for different types of glaucoma and specific areas you want to study, like different phenotypes?
2: Yeah. Uh, Well, I think it is pretty new and novel because most of the other models in mice for glaucoma uh, are models that take a lot of time. Like there's a, a one genetic model that was created about 15 years ago, but for the the mouse, the glaucoma to occur in that mouse model, it takes almost a year. So that's a long time for you to do experimental studies, right? You're waiting for your mice to get glaucoma close to eight to nine, 10 months of age. So the models we've created, they get glaucoma within between two and four months of age. So we've dramatically decreased that amount of time. And so that's a model we can definitely play with, right? Versus the other model that, takes a lot of time. And the other thing with some of the other genetic models is between each mouse, there's a lot of variability. And that really makes it difficult for your studies. Whereas our mutant mice that we've created have uh, pretty much the same phenotype. So you know they have what we call high penetrance of the mutation and we get the same phenotype in all of the mice. And uh, and again, like I said, between two and four months of age, uh, significant loss of retinal ganglion cells in a pattern that is very similar to what you would see in human glaucoma.
0: That means it's definitely very specific, I'm guessing, for any results that you have. You can definitely tell that within the internal validity of the study, it would be very high. But how relatable is it to the real world where you have the mice models and then comparing it to actual humans and the glaucoma that develops in people?
2: Right. So, of course, animal models are never perfect. Uh, One... Good thing about the mouse, like I just mentioned, is the high intraocular pressure leads to the retinal degeneration and loss of retinal ganglion cells as seen in human. And it, it actually occurs segmentally in the retina and that segmental pattern of loss resembles what we see in humans, so that's great. Differences though are obvious between human and mice. Um, mice don't have a phobia at the back of the retina, humans do. The optic nerve head's a bit different in humans versus the mouse. But again, in our mouse model, we do see some degeneration of the optic nerve that is very similar to what's seen in human glaucoma patients. Um, the outflow pathway of the eye is similar in humans in mice, but there are some differences. It seems in mice, the turnover of the aqueous humor and the outflow is faster. So when you go to test drugs on a mouse versus a human, they're going to clear those drugs a little bit faster than in the human eye, uh, but keeping all of those things in mind, I think we can still make some really good comparisons and some analyses of new topical drugs to reduce intraocular pressure and also neuroprotectants that we're putting into the back of the eye.
1: When doing those studies, you probably just have to like keep in mind, you know, which parts, you know, which results would be more relevant than others. Because if you get a result about something that's different in the eyes, it would maybe not be so valid. But if it's something that is the same, then You can pretty confidently say that this model represents something similar to a human eye, right? Yeah.
2: And and when we're dealing with these models, we're also validating them at the same time, right? So we're not just using them for testing. We're trying to still validate them as a model in themselves. So one of the things we're doing in our models right now is we're using tracer drugs and we're tracing where uh, the drugs go in the eye and the timing of they're being cleared from the eye so we can compare that to what's known in humans
3: i was wondering if we could maybe just go back a little bit because i was really interested in what you said about how your models of the mice you know take two to four months to develop glaucoma what like how are you guys going about like are you breeding mice are you is it genetic engineering some kind of gene therapy so what are you guys doing that's like different so
2: that's a good question uh, so, we use a gene targeting approach, a CreLox B system. You could also use uh, CRISPR Cas9, but we use a CRE system that's up and working in our lab. And what that involves is we have a certain line of mice that um, express this CRE recombinase in a specific tissue within the anterior segment of the eye. And those are normal mice, they just express this CRE recombinase. But when you cross them with a floxed mice of your gene of interest, It excises that gene of interest in that tissue in the anterior segment of the eye. So it's called a tissue-specific knockout. So the rest of the animal, the gene I'm interested in, is normal. But in the the cells of the anterior angle of the eye are the ones I target. And the gene family we're working on is this AP2 family. And we knew that gene was likely important because we knew where it was expressed in the anterior part of the eye. So to test its role, we cross these mice together and we knocked it out in that tissue. And not only did we learn about what the, the role of that gene is in creating that tissue, we created a model of glaucoma. So, so because I knocked that gene out in that tissue in the one model, it caused the cornea and the iris to adhere to one another and block the angle. I didn't know that was going to happen. <laughs> so some of it was a little bit uh, fortuitous. Um, but because of the, where that gene was expressed during development and the protein uh, product of that gene, I guessed that it's playing an important role in those tissues and the outflow angle. And I was right. And because of that, um, we created a model of glaucoma. And then we have another model with a new Cree, <laughs> a new Cree recombinase that's expressed slightly differently. And we tested that one and we ended up with with a partially open angle. So so some of this is uh, trial and error, Um, but these are sort of developmental models that I've created. And so in some regards, you can look at this as developmental glaucoma, but it still ends up with the same result where we get an increase in intraocular pressure uh, by the time they're a month old. And then by two, three, four months, we start to lose the retinal
3: ganglion cells. Oh, okay, so that makes actually, sense. Yeah, yeah. You actually answered some other questions that I had about um, your paper. You, um, I was just wondering, how do you even go about finding, like, what gene to target and all that? Because there, there's so many, right? Um, but since you answered that, that's fantastic.
2: Um, just, I'll add one little thing. Um, it's really changed nowadays too, because people are doing a lot more of these RNA sequencing study studies from tissues and single cell RNA seq. So I think you're going to see in the next, you know, five years, an explosion of data about um, where genes are expressed in various tissues at all times of development and. Particularly in, mouse, in the mouse. So it's going to be kind of interesting to see how people pick and choose their targets uh, based on that. But there's going to be a lot of things to choose from.
3: And then, from like kind of playing around with AP2, have you found like any other genes in your research that you have related to maybe glaucoma or other things? And like, how's it kind of exploded from there if it has? Right.
2: So, that in the glaucoma part, we're really just getting going on because, as just mentioned, the single-cell RNA-seq procedure we've actually done using our mutant mice versus our control mice and that anterior segment tissue. So now we're teasing out all of the genes that are up or down regulated in my knockout model compared to controls in all those different cell types. So it's quite, it's quite complicated, but we are getting potential downstream targets of our gene. And because our gene is a transcription factor that regulates downstream genes. So now what we're putting together is called really a gene regulatory network. So we can understand sort of the whole cascade of what's happening and who controls, you know, what. Um, so that we're going on that right now. But in the past, some of my work has led me to um, genes downstream of ap 2 like cell adhesion molecules. So one, one of my projects, in lens development led me to the fact that the ab2 genes control e-cadherin in lens morphogenesis and so then i went off and studied you know how e-cadherin plays a role in morphogenesis so it can really lead you to different projects based on what you find
1: i mean i thought i i found the whole thing about i think i think the this sort of like new technology and new methods are actually really cool i actually personally never heard of tissue specific knockout mice before i knew that you know knockout mice were used for a lot of other things when they removed the entire gene from the entire animal, but I never heard of like tissue specific things. Uh, Is that like a new technology thing? Or? No,
2: it's, it's been around for a while, but, and it's quite powerful. And I mean, and now people are using even CRISPR-Cas9, um, you know, because you can probably inject that in to different tissues and cause a knockout. Other people are using adenoviral vectors with a Cre. So you could actually inject an adenoviral vector expressing pre-recombinase into your floxed mouse, and that can cause recombination and changes in uh, expression of the gene in the tissue that, you know, you're injecting it into. So there's there's so many methodologies for um, gain of function and loss of function in tissues and animals. It's it's pretty incredible. And and that's always attracted me to this, this area of research.
0: So since there's so many, and they obviously have their own advantages and disadvantages, do you think you will be trying out different methods down the line for the yeah. a- gene and others?
2: That's a good question. Um, yes. And particularly if I'm, what time timing I'm interested in the gene and when, where it's expressed. So In postnatal animals, for example, right? I might use that adenoviral Cree I just talked about because I can just inject that into the anterior eye and cause recombination in an adult animal. If I'm interested in developmental aspects, if I already have the Cree mice, I probably would use those, but maybe if I didn't, I might explore CRISPR-Cas9. So I guess it's whatever is the most efficient. You know, do I have the resources already? So it would just depend on a lot of different parameters, but I feel like there's so many choices now and and you'd have to have good rationale. You know, a lot of this is based on funded research. So we have to, you know, come up with a good research plan uh, that is uh, funded by various organizations.
0: With respect to just the genes, because we talked a lot about the AP2 gene and all the different techniques that are being used right now. What about the other things that you've identified, such as PAX6, MIP26, and yeah. some other ones mentioned in your other papers?
2: Yeah, so those those ones you're mentioning are mainly uh, from some of the work I did in the lens, uh, which was a while ago. Um, you know, again, because we're focusing a little bit more now on this glaucoma project. Again, I'm I'm looking at downstream targets. Uh, that were identified in those tissues. And that's gonna come from that single cell RNA-seq study. So I'm collaborating with someone from University of Colorado, and we have a lot of this this data um, coming from that. Uh, Some of it actually was just reported in our recent corneal paper, because uh, in some of those mutant models, we cause deletion of AB2 beta in parts of the cornea. And some of the downstream targets in there Uh, we highlighted such as, um, I think I have some of the keratin genes that are identified in there. So we sort of go with where the data takes us and what makes sense. And you can also from that just determine what are direct downstream targets of AB2. So you can look at, um, you know, what's in the promoter of those genes? Are there AB2 binding sites in those promoters? And does AB2 actually bind to those promoters and regulate gene expression kind of taking it all in oh no it's fine I hope I'm explaining it more uh it it, you know in the right detail
3: (laughs) it is a little complex I'll be honest maybe a a couple parts kind of go over my head but from the general idea it's all just so like
2: yeah I think visually sometimes like when we give presentations you know, you you show your cream mouse and your flux mouse, and you you know, and you could show the recombination. You could almost, you know, do it, you know, graphically and 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 then it gives people an idea of exactly where we're targeting and, and what we're doing. But it is it is complex, especially when you start getting into gene regulatory networks and sort of they call it the omics. There's a lot of omics now, a transcript transcriptomics, uh, genomics. I mean, there's there's a lot of data being generated. uh, And bioinformatics is going to be huge in this area. Um, So there's some that goes beyond above my head, too. And I collaborate with people to help me understand um, the computer programs that they're using to analyze this data. And so that I can come up with a big picture, because I'm, I'm a big picture person. I I, I used to joke you know tube biology is kind of because everything we do is in a tube but i also like to see the tissue and 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 what the knockout animals look like and the physiology and so i like the big picture uh, i think that's important
1: yeah some of our some of our professors also prefer that uh, my current biochem inquiry professor always prefers us to use pictures over words that kind of thing
2: yeah yeah because it's you know i mean we all get caught up in the data too much sometimes and if you see presentations at conferences sometimes you know people just put up these pages of data you know you just kind of go Yeah, oh. <laughs> you need us to walk you through it right and give you the main the, the main picture
3: um so like seeing that you're very interested in how everything kind of comes together what are some like nice things that you've kind of learned from your research after like seeing it all laid out like what have been some nice like aha moments for you oh
2: that's a good question um again i i think when we make a mutant model and we get the embryos at first and then the the, we see the um Uh, offspring and the adults and and their phenotypes, those are usually my aha moments because we are guessing, but until we do the experiment, you know, we don't know. And so, you know, I made this mouse and all of a sudden, you know, these cells are gone because I took a gene out and the whole phenotype of the mouse changed. And, you know, now they're developed developed glaucoma or they got a cataract or, you know, so I guess I, I make blind mice sort of speak, (laughs) but but, um, and then then characterizing those mice and understanding how their disease process is kind of similar to humans. And, And I think one of the things, the aha moment I had too, was when I started working on this gene family, actually 20 years ago, because I was a postdoc, when I started working on this gene family, there were no mutations in humans in this gene family known to cause eye diseases. But we were still working on it in mice because we saw that the genes were expressed at an interesting location in the eye and the developing eye. So we were exploring it. But as I worked on mice, data came out in humans. Like the AP2 alpha gene mutation causes something called BOFS in humans, which is a brachio-oculofacial syndrome. And lo and behold, they have ocular disorders. And so I kind of we, we discovered this in mice before it even was sort of characterized in humans. So that also kind of made me feel like, wow, my work is, you know, even more important, right? <laughs> it's not just important for understanding developmental biology, but it's important for understanding human disease. So, so I love it when our, our work helps us understand developmental biology and molecular genetics of the eye. But then when it's really important for human disease, for me, that all comes
1: together yeah it's pretty crazy to know that like th- that you've been doing research for over 20 years because that's like that's legitimately longer than we have lived right? I know. I know say that. <laughs> and, and we can and well the point i'm trying to get at here is that e- like even we can imagine how much medical knowledge has changed over oh. even just the course of our lifetimes right let alone 20 plus years right so yeah. you you touched upon it a little bit in in in, in what you were just saying but Um, Over the course of like these 20 years of research that you've done on, you know, the eye um, glaucoma and on all sorts of different genetic models, what else has really changed?
2: Oh, um, well, the the methodologies uh, have exploded. Like I just mentioned, you know, all the genomic, transcriptomic, proteomic, I mean, all those approaches have just exploded. So that, the tools have changed and they keep changing so that we can do more and more than we could before. So that, that's always a good thing. Um, What else has changed? I mean, it's on the negative side, just to say, uh, we have a lot more regulatory things that we have to do as principal investigators in running our labs. And that that's too bad in a way. I mean, I know we're all just trying to protect the safety of others. But sometimes that that doesn't give us a lot of freedom to think and explore. And, um, and funding is become it's become more difficult to obtain for some and there's a lot more paperwork that goes into it. So you know, you have to have a lot of preliminary data now before you get a grant. So if you can't get your foot in the door with that, you know, that's a difficulty. Whereas before, I think it could be more exploratory, you know, and some of those exploratory things led to some pretty cool discoveries, right? So I hope that we, there's some way we could still be exploratory in nature and and you don't have to start a project just because you think it's clinically relevant, because you just don't know. Because like I said, the gene family I was working on before wasn't clinically relevant, but we were still working on it because of some fascinating developmental biology data. and thankfully we did because I think it does have clinical relevance now. So so that, um, yeah, I, I you know, um, just for me, mainly the tools have really changed. but I sort of still think the same. I guess it's kind of hard to change the way we we are. I think again, more big picture, physiological, um, you know, I don't think just about the genetics, I think about also the, the physiology of the animal model, et cetera. So.
3: so, do you find like research has become more like taking pre existing research and trying to apply it onto humans and less about understanding biology, genetics, and everything in a more
2: wider scope? Right. I, I do think. Some are pushing people to be that way. Um, Luckily, I mean, there are still some agencies that fund more basic research, like NSERC actually does here in Canada. I think NSF in the US does. Um, So depending on where you're trying to get your research funding from, I think you still can just focus on basic biological mechanisms. But this bench to bedside, as they call it, is much more of a push than it used to be when I was a graduate student, for example. I mean, when I was a graduate student, I, I didn't get to mention this I think, but I, oh yeah, I did. I, I mean, I worked on squid eyes. I mean, you know, I worked on cephalopods and I went and I collected baby squid and I grew them in a tank. I spent three months on Vancouver Island at a marine biology lab. I mean, nowadays, I don't know if, you know, students are, you know, encouraged to do those kind of projects. Um, you know, but they're fascinating and I, I, you know, I, I sort of learned a lot about what I like and what I didn't like about that research. Um, so, so I hope that those sorts of projects still exist and that students have the freedom to do those sorts of things because, you know, not everything has to be clinically relevant or we'll miss on really important discoveries. So
3: this is, I don't know if this is going to be a topic. But you know how you said to get funding, you kind of have to have like a research, not model, but like way to go.
2: Or oh, yeah.
3: So if that, if maybe something changes in what you kind of discover along the way, like what
2: happens? Um, oh, right. Yeah, and it does. So when you write a research plan, you have ideas of where you're going to take the project and the aims that you're going to investigate, so that you have a plan, right? Because they want to. guaranteed if they're giving you all this money that you you have a good plan. But one of the things they do a lot of agencies is after the first year of your funding, so say they give you four years of funding they're going to give you, after your first year you write a progress report and that's the opportunity for you to say, hey you know this is going well but this isn't and this is the change we're going to make and often they're fine with that. Um, And so usually You know, I try to stick to my aims, but obviously, if something's not going so well, but something else is going really well, we we tend to change things. Um, I do that with my student projects too. So sometimes I say to a student, okay, you're going to work on this, but you know, in case that isn't going to work out, why don't you think about this too? And then we have different directions we can go because, you know, if it's so straightforward, it's probably boring. (laughs) So the more interesting stuff, is a bit riskier, right? So so I always try to put my students on something maybe risky, but then something a little safer so that in the end they have some data, but the risky stuff is really worthwhile.
0: That's really fascinating to think about just how so many things have changed, but not just in like the research, uh, like the methodology that people take, even just in the most common sense of like how you conduct research or just the way that you research how how we understand eyes even is continually evolving with your current research and other research in the field i was wondering though if there's so much going on the one thing that's staying constant is that the eyes are still structured the same everything is usually located in the same place yeah. in that sense how has our understanding of those different components of the eye like the trabecular meshwork? Um, the cornea, how has that, has that evolved at all? Or has that changed? Or have we gotten new information on those very things that we take for granted almost?
2: Right? Well, I think, um, you know, the general anatomy obviously stays the same, right? But understanding, we have like, time lapse now, so we can watch cells going into a tissue during development. So, So we can learn more about um, where the, the cells are going and how they're laid down. We can learn more about stem cells, for example, because the eye like many other tissues has a stem cell niche, for example in the corneal epithelium. and um, we are still trying to understand that. It's such a complex tissue, right? But now again with all these different techniques, um, we have you know for example most models where you can color, the progeny of a stem cell in like different colors. So you can have four daughter cells with different colors that come out of the the stem cell niche. And I can show you where those daughter cells go. So, so we can really understand more about those tissues, even though they are, you know, not changing anatomically, but, but we can understand how they're formed. And if we do understand how they're formed and how the stem cells, for example, form the corneal epithelium, then we, can target them in diseases like dry eye disease um, and limbal epithelial stem cell diseases of the cornea. So, so again, understanding those basic biological mechanisms—it's still ongoing, and it has real importance to the clinic in the end. I hope that answered your question.
0: Yeah, for sure. And speaking of the new advancements in. Coloring the different cells, the progeny of the stem cells. Has there been anything using those techniques that has really changed the way we see, let's say the cornea or different parts of the eye or how we understand glaucoma, even something that might have contradicted past knowledge?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, in the cornea, for example, I think people thought that the stem cells were only in this little niche. But actually, it turns out that some of them are actually in the basal epithelial part of the corneal themselves. And when you disrupt that whole limbal epithelial niche, like if you got rid of it, some of those basal cells will go back to the niche and repopulate the stem cells and that that area. And people never thought about that before. Uh, so so things like that, you know, those, those techniques are showing different parts of biology we didn't understand before.
1: All right. So, I mean, that's just a lot of stuff about, (laughs) about all these new techniques that are just kind of blowing stuff open, um, as, as well referring to like the clinical side of things, um, are there any like really exciting, like drugs or drug targets or even other therapies looking really promising for glaucoma treatment?
2: Right. Um, so a lot of the drugs right now are for treating the hypertension, so the high intraocular pressure, uh, usually prostaglandins, so, um, which actually reduce aqueous production. So overall, like there's less aqueous being produced. And some of the drugs also open up the outflow channels of the eye. So those are topical drugs that are applied to the cornea. And so patients usually have to take them once or twice a day and um, that's really the only treatment there is right now as I mentioned before as far as the retinal degeneration uh, you know there's studies that are uh, focused on trying to get these cells back or preventing them from being lost but there's no drug on the market right now for that part of glaucoma the end point of glaucoma so to speak um, the other problem with the drops is people forget to take them, um, or they don't, you know, they, they they don't stay around, right? They penetrate the cornea, they get through into the anterior chamber, and then they're, they, they leave the anterior chamber. So you have to keep supplying the cornea with drug. So one idea that we're working on with our collaborator here at McMaster University is to use micelles. So that micelles would encapsulate these bilayer lipid drugs, would encapsulate the the drug itself. And then those would be the drops you put on the cornea and they tend to hang around more uh, in the tear film and deliver the drug. So what's thought of with that is you might not have to take the drops as frequently because they would deliver the drug over time to the eye. So that's sort of like a drug delivery device that I've been working on with my colleague, um, Heather Shearden in chemical engineering.
1: You think? Do you think like the mouse models would provide new ways to like find new targets for these treatments, though?
2: Yeah. So we're actually testing those micelles on um, the mouse models right now. So that's a, a funded project we have with Dr. Heather Sheardin, um from CIHR. So yeah, we're testing those drugs with the micelles. Plus, we're track We're also just testing regular. It's one of the drugs is called latanoprose. We're 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 really looking at that in our mouse models just to see the difference between that. And humans, um, and then in our in our mutants. So uh, so yeah, we're we're testing these things now, and you know if we can reduce the intraocular pressure over time, then we would say, oh, can we stop the progression of that glaucoma? So we probably take some of our mutant mice early in age and keep treating them with the drugs and see what happens to uh, uh, to the retinal degeneration. The other thing that we're doing is a project with. Um, an investigator at Harvard who has a viral vector that expresses some key factors that are thought to help in regeneration. And we're putting that into the back of the eye of the mutants to see if we can restore some of the uh, retinal ganglion cell loss or prevent it. That's very experimental.
1: (laughs) Well, you never know. Maybe it couldn't be, maybe it wouldn't be so irreversible sometime in the future.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So
0: yeah, for glaucoma, I know, as you mentioned right now, there's no real cure. There's just treatment that we're doing to slow the onset or just to prevent the actual effects from mm-hmm. occurring. But is there, do you think, unlike a disease maybe such as ALS, which we do not seem to have anything in the near future, do you think that for glaucoma, there is a possibility within the near future that mm-hmm. there could be some treatment that? would work realistically to to cure it?
2: Well, I mean, the one thing about the eye uh, is gene therapy seems to be a little further advanced um, for some diseases. For example, I think retinitis pigmentosa right now has a gene therapy, therapy approach. So the eye is ahead of the game in that arena because the eye is kind of contained. So people feel more safe using sort of gene therapy in the eye versus maybe more systemically. So... So if anything is gonna happen, I would think the eye might be one of the the organs where you're gonna see some gene therapy in the next little while, whether it's for glaucoma or not, I can't really say, Um, but but yeah, the eye seems to have kind of uh, an advantage in, in those sort of treatments.
0: And since our focus right now is on glaucoma, but of course your research is on other ocular diseases as well, I was wondering, we talk about glaucoma right now as if it's in this sort of enclosed vacuum, but is there any crosstalk between, uh, glaucoma, maybe myopia, other eye diseases and how does that play out in the real world?
2: Oh, oh yeah. So there is a lot of crosstalk because, uh, for example, with glaucoma, sometimes if you do glaucoma treatments, they can cause cataracts. Um, some of these developmental, these congenital disorders, um, where the cornea and the iris abut together, they also cause problems with the lens, and they cause uh, corneal and lens cataracts. Uh, so, so they're never, they're not always completely distinct, and they definitely can affect one another. But open angle glaucoma, you know, with age, typically doesn't involve other tissues. Um, so, is that what you're asking? I guess so. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Just to see the distinction between the different diseases, where we draw the line and if it does lead into another disease, like if you get glaucoma, maybe is there some sort of risk factor that's increased for other types of diseases? Yeah.
2: Yeah. And and people who get cataract surgeries too, sometimes there can be an inflammatory response afterwards and that can induce kind of, um, you know, glaucoma. So there's, yeah, with age and surgery, there's always an increased risk of getting these sort of crossed up between the different ocular diseases.
0: Well, I just wanted to maybe elaborate a bit on the point of diseases. And you mentioned cataracts. So with cataracts specifically, is cat are cataracts almost a sort of sign of glaucoma being developed, like in the process of developing, or are they completely separate?
2: Um, my understanding is uh, they're not usually a sign of glaucoma. I mean, it metabolically, if there was something wrong with the eye, you might see a cataract and glaucoma, if there was something wrong with the eye metabolism. But cataracts, cataracts, I always say they're kind of like cancer. There's quite a different number of types of cataracts and causes, you know. So aging cataract tends to be cortical cataracts. Basically what happens is the, the proteins within the cells of the lens start to accumulate and um, they're not in a regular fashion anymore and that causes um, uh, cloudiness so so that that's a typical aging cataract and it's usually you know reactive reactive oxygen species that sort of thing that's happening um, within the lens you can get a cataract from injury uh, you know um, you can get a diabetic cataract uh so from diabetes so there's all different causes and you you know there could be something you know where you maybe diabetes also induces glaucoma in some ways and causes a cataract so if it's a general metabolic disease you might see that as a sign but i do think that a lot more of the cataracts are isolated on their own and have nothing to do with glaucoma
0: in general there's a lot to think about and unpack here
2: oh yeah Um, yeah
0: so (laughs) We just want to thank you for your so much for your time, Dr. Westmays, and it was an incredibly eye-opening experience to talk <laughs> about.
2: <laughs> That's the great thing about the eye. There are a lot of puns. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I think we definitely learned a lot just in general about glaucoma and all the research that you're doing related to eye development, and I think it's quite interesting and maybe Anyone who listens to this might be also interested in eye-related research or just eyes in general and maybe something to explore in the future.